You can do anything you want. You are bound by nothing. What are you passionate about? What do you want? Your dreams. You've got to keep dreaming. You know, ambition can be a bit of a two-edged sword. It can be a very creative kind of motivator, or it can be a source of self-destruction. Your better future is a dream for yourself and for your family. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? What do you want to see? I got in an Uber the other day, and the first question, like it often is, from the driver was, oh, what do you do? And then I have to say, I'm an actor. <laughs> and then the next obvious question is, oh, would I have seen you in anything? To which I say, no. I just do corporate role play and improvised theatre and independent stuff. It's a crushing question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get it too. <laughs> Welcome to Strive. This is a podcast that explores the pleasures and the pitfalls of modern ambition. I'm Rachel Dyson-McGregor. I'm Mike McAvoy. And we are theatre makers. We are actors and uh, podcast makers. And we're interested in this topic because our own ambitions, some have been realised and some haven't. And it's uncomfortable for us. We were making our last show about mortality and death and uh, we sort of turned our attention to how we're actually spending our lives. We're in our mid-30s. What are we striving for? What are we putting our energy into? And is all this striving good for us? And as we were researching this topic, we kept coming across this elegant metaphor for ambition, archery. Last year, the perfect opportunity presented itself. Right! I'm boiling this day now. Okay, good Water's morning, good. everybody. How are we all doing? Fine. Good. You all right? Yeah. I was in England at a holiday park and I was about to try archery for the first time. Right! It is the perfect weather conditions for archery, guys. Perfect. Our instructor's name was Mark, and he gave us preliminary instructions for firing an arrow. He said okay a lot. Thank you. Okay. Now you guys understand to do so. If the word stop is shouted, everything must stop right there and then. Okay. If you hit my field, okay, we've got to find it. Okay. I'll come out with you. All right? Okay. You could tell that he'd given these instructions hundreds of times. Now, upper limb here, lower limb here, bow window here, the rest here, western knocking point right here. So we got our gear on, and then Mark showed us a technique for firing the arrow. So you fire two or three arrows just aiming at the bullseye and then you stop and you look at where the arrows have landed and you'll notice that they'll often go into a bit of a cluster and they'll be on a similar part of the target. So let's say most of your arrows have landed say a little bit to the left and down from the bullseye. Instead of aiming at the bullseye you aim a little bit up and to the right. So to compensate for your natural tendency. Exactly. It was time for the first shoot. Right. <laughs> Load up your arrows, please. Now could be a good time to introduce Dr. Paul Healy, who's a senior lecturer of philosophy at Swinburne University in Melbourne. I went to speak to him about ambition. It's almost commonsensical that, uh, you know, ambition can be a bit of a two-edged sword. 
Mm. It can it can be a, it can be a very creative kind of motivator, or it can be a source of self destruction. We've been speaking about ambition and whether it's good for us. And Paul had something interesting to say about good. He spoke about Aristotle's definition of what good ambition is. It's all based on the uh, the doctrine of the mean, and the mean is the uh, the mean as in the middle. Uh, the, the main score, the, mm-hmm. the middle, he talks about, uh, think about a, a line divided in halves, the middle is the midpoint, and there's an extreme on either end. And he says, with regard to whatever it might be, ambition, pleasure, uh, altruism, all sorts of things, hitting the mean, hitting the midpoint, hitting the mark, and he sometimes compares it to an archer hitting the bullseye, mm-hmm. uh, is what we need to strive for. So not only is ambition itself a two-edged sword, but in Aristotle's mind, good ambition sits on a sliding scale and we need to find the midpoint, the mean, the target, the bullseye. But it turns out hitting the bullseye is really hard. I was shooting with my mum, and I asked her how she found shooting her first round of arrows. Try and do so many things at once, holding my, remembering to hold my arm out, pulling the bow, because it's quite hard to pull it, and trying to get it to my mouth, trying to hold it still so that you can direct it, and then letting go. <laughs> it's really, really hard. I found that the hardest thing to do. Aristotle himself says, it is a difficult business to be good. Uh, because in any given case, it is difficult to find the midpoint. You know, just as it's hard for an archer to hit the bullseye, it's just at one point. He says it's, um, that's why it is difficult to be good. Which also brings out, come back to this passage in a moment, but also brings out the point that he's not just talking about a middle of the road doctrine. You know, he's not saying, don't do it because it's too hard. Just take the halfway point and do that much. He's saying doing what's exactly right. And that might mean like, uh, you know, really standing out and taking a public stand or going all for it in terms of realizing your ambition. Or it might mean stepping back from that at times. So mm-hmm. it, it's not any one thing. It's the fittingness to the circumstances. And that's what he says. Um, he says... Uh, to feel or act towards the right person to the right extent, at the right time, for the right reason, and in the right way. That's the mean. But he also says, that is not easy, and it is not everyone that can do it. Uh, but that's what we're, we're aiming at. <laughs> so that round, I hit a bullseye, <laughs> and it felt amazing. <laughs> I did what he said. I just hit two, trying to aim at the bullseye, and they both went a little bit below the bullseye, right? Yes. And then the third one, I just aimed a little bit above the bullseye, and it went in. Right. Because, yeah. Right. And it's very satisfying. <laughs> Your bullseye was not only in the middle, it was in dead centre. It was right in the middle of it. <laughs> right in the middle of the middle. Yeah. It was fantastic. Lucky. No, not lucky, a skill. <laughs> wow. 
You get just this rush though, don't you? Like, this sort of... <laughs> Achieve something. Woo! Feeling, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that sort of... It like motivates you to keep to going, keep going yeah. yeah. To like, because I just want yeah. another, I just want another arrow, I just want another arrow, you know. I just want to see if I can do it again. And then you do it again, it's not, you yeah. doesn't hit the bullseye the next one, and, yeah. and then you're like, you just want another one, because you want to get back there. You want to get back there. You did it. I did it. I hit the bullseye. You sounded truly thrilled. Oh, it felt amazing. But the only problem now was I had to try and do it again. Now I'd done it once, I wanted more. I, I, think, that there, I think that there are um, social pressures which somehow tell us that we, we should actually be achieving m- more and more. If you're a lecturer or an actress or whatever, why aren't you the headline, the headline celebrity? Ah, I wasn't so good this time. Yeah, I kind of got them, where did I go? I went on on the blue and then I got some like at the bottom of the black. But then, How did it feel? Oh, I was, yeah, I was a bit like, oh. I was a bit disappointed because I'd done really well the last time. And then when he was watching, I was, I did a really, I did a complete dud. So I th- I think I felt a bit of pressure or something. And also the people behind me, they were watching the last time and I'd done really well and they were like whooping me. Right. And now it's just sort of a bit crap. So... So you think that the pressure had anything to do with it? It might have done. Yeah. But then luckily on the last shot, I got in the yellow again, I think. And so that felt good again. <laughs> oh dear. It's hitting that midpoint. It's hitting the bullseye all the time. In the right, in terms of the right amount of ambition, uh, the fittingness of the response to the situation. Did you hit it again? No. I only hit the bullseye once. My last round of arrows was pretty average, and then I left with this mix of feelings. Did I succeed or did I fail? Being a philosopher doesn't necessarily mean a commitment to being the big name celebrity philosopher. And I think, and I think it takes a while to see this, that's not necessarily um, a deficiency for the individual um, if they're actualizing themselves according to their uh, natural talents. If we had a whole world full of Alain de Boutons, of us philosophers, um, that wouldn't necessarily be the ideal state for a philosopher. So we don't all need to want to be the best archers in the world. You know, we can choose what level of archery success suits our particular skills and needs and interests. Yeah, and that makes complete sense to me when I'm thinking about archery because I don't really care about how good an archer I am. But then when I think about the things that I do care about, the things that I want to be known for, the things I want to be good at, I find it so much harder to reconcile this sliding scale of ambition. We also need philosophers who realize themselves uh, in more anonymous kind of ways, you know, just nurturing students and, and things like that. Not, not because they're not very good philosophers, but because that's where, where their talent lies, you know, and that aspect is needed um, as much as the big name. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's the really challenging thing for all of us 
to put it in a kind of contemporary parlance uh, to find our niche, the, the right niche for us, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Which could be a very humble niche, like lecturing in philosophy at Swinburne, and not thinking that that is necessarily uh, not as good at lecturing in philosophy at Melbourne Uni or uh, at Harvard or, or, or someplace, but, but recognizing um, this is the right niche compa- compatible with, with my particular skills and needs and interests. Bye bye! And there again, I, I don't think we can ever be entirely sure, but you know, uh, but that's where I don't think we should let the anxiety about have I done enough, have I got, have I aimed high enough, get to us. So that was me trying archery for the first time and my elation and frustration with the experience. And we wondered, what is it like for somebody who is a competitive archer? I went and met Samantha Crawford, an Australian champion field archer, and I asked her what goes through her mind when she's shooting arrows. You do these checks, you start from the bottom and you work your way up. Um, So I usually go feet and then hips (laughs) and then shoulders and then take a nice big deep breath and um, get ready to draw and release so but apart from your actual form you're not really thinking at all it's like meditation you're just focusing on that one spot it's so elegant with archery it's like ambition boiled down it's just the archer their thoughts an arrow and the goal in front of them it's funny samantha came to archery at a point in her life when she was feeling a bit aimless she had ambition but no target she said she needed something just for her. She needed to challenge herself. Well, it was strange actually. Um, at the time I was a single mum and um, I was speaking to my mum saying, I really need to make friends, I need to, to do something, find a hobby of some sort. And um, she said, well, what did you do in high school? Is there something that you like doing there? And I said, yeah, I like javelin, but that wasn't you know, probably a good option. So um, she said, well, there's an archery club five minutes from where you live. And I went, oh, really? okay let's go give it a go so um yeah she watched my son and i went down for the first one and i was hooked and then kept going flat out at it and uh, won my first competition three months after i'd picked up a bow so i was pretty pretty hooked she was hooked when you shoot an arrow you get instant feedback success and failure for each arrow is immediate it's instant gratification or instant frustration Yeah, and the way that I reacted when I hit the bullseye and the way that Samantha's archery career took off with really early wins, it sounds a bit like what Rob was talking about. This is psychologist Rob Hart from Zest Learning. We talk a bit about the the, the winner effect, and this comes from neuroscience, and there's a a writer called uh, Ian Robertson who wrote the book The Winner Effect. And typically here, um, he's talking about how it becomes almost a biological need to be achieving things. And it's got a dark side, but if we look at the good side first, you actually get a bit of a, a dopamine hit, which is the good kind of positive feel you get from uh, an enjoyment. And uh, as we start to achieve more, it, it can start to become addictive. I always wanted to 
go overseas, that's, that was the overall goal. But um, I thought that that would happen over a slower amount of time. So I didn't really go into too many competitions to start off with, thinking that maybe I needed to build my skill set and whatnot. So I just did state and national championships. But then I started to win those as well. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I'm doing a lot better than I thought. So they made a place for me to be able to actually go overseas. And 2012 was the best year of my life, I reckon. <laughs> Got to go over to France and shoot, and um, I ended up 17th in, in the world. In the world! So what started as a hobby really quickly set her on a journey to master the sport and expand her horizons by competing overseas. It's like that success, particularly early on, is the seed of ambition. And ambition is the side effect of an addiction to success. You'd think that would be enough. But the truth is she wasn't content. She revealed this underlying dissatisfaction. For me, getting into the top 16 was what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into the top 16, which, which meant that you went for a shoot-off. And I thought, how thrilling to go in a shoot-off. Um, but then I came 17th and I was like, oh, that's really crappy, you know, and I was a bit down on myself. But then everybody's going, that's 17th in the world. How can you not be proud with that? How could you not be proud of that? As we start to achieve more, it, it can start to become addictive. This is the winner effect. It becomes almost a biological need to be achieving things. You hear that thump and you know that it's hit the target. You go, I've done it. I've actually done it. There's a massive release of, of all kinds of things. You endorphins, you have good feel-good hormones. Serotonin is often known as the sort of the happy hormone. And when people are depressed, they don't have enough serotonin. But dopamine is almost an addiction cycle. This is Tony Glynn, a sports psychologist. There's psychological correlates that go along with those biological changes makes people more either assertive or confident or their beliefs higher. The same release and reward system happens when we, we get our fix, which could be success, the roar of the crowd, the applause at the end of a show. Over time, this changes the brain structure and the chemical makeup makes you smarter, more confident, more able to take on larger challenges than before. It's what Tony calls psychological momentum. It's a bath of happy hormones. So mostly all these happy hormones give us momentum and help us keep winning. But like Rob told us, there's a dark side. It can also affect our performance in the moment. You might notice that latterly they've started taking players off after they score a goal. And I used to look there and think, that's rather strange. Why would they take them off when they're riding a wave of, 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 of power and success? That's exactly the point. You have reserves of this. And if you keep somebody on the pitch who's over-adrenalised, they need to come off calm down because you use huge amounts of your energy reserves, mentally and physically, when you get a dopamine release. So they're more likely to make a mistake. There's a huge surge of testosterone, and that can deplete if you don't control it. You've got to ride a wave of it. Maybe that's what happened to you, Rach, when you hit the bullseye. So you can see comedians freeze on stage when they get a really good laugh because they've suddenly enjoyed that too much. And it's, oh, my brain's frozen. Where, where do I go next? And could that be what happened to Samantha when she went overseas? Um, my legs were shaking and I couldn't hit the target for the first five targets that I went to. It was quite embarrassing. And I felt terrible. But, um, you know, it was probably everybody else at home that was just so proud, giving positive words um, and whatnot. And it wasn't until I got home that um, I realised how well I'd actually done. As you listen to Samantha's daughters shoot for the target, you can hear how the kids express all the emotions associated with ambition. Yeah. 
It happened to Rach in England. It happened to Samantha at the World Field Championships. Last arrow. Last arrow. Oh, it bounced! Mummy, it bounced off the blue! Is it something that happens to us all? It bounced. Why did that happen? In the next episode, we'll look at dreaming. How big is your ambition? And is the size of your dream important? Thank you to Mark from Centre Parks, Dr Paul Healy, Kim McGregor, Samantha Crawford and her family, Robert Hart and Dr Tony Glynn. Strive is created by Rachel Dyson McGregor and Mike McAvoy with sound designer and producer Darius Kedros with support from the city of Yarra. Yarra.